this is Charlie O'Shields back again with another episode of Sketching Stuff. This is episode number 20, and since that feels like a nice round number, I thought I'd celebrate it with a selection of stories about embracing one's inner child. That little voice inside all of us that has the coolest ideas and always wants to have the most fun in life. And as silly as those ideas can sometimes seem, I've found that kid to be the wisest muse I've ever had the privilege to enjoy when it comes to both life and art. Also, April is my birthday month, and though I'll be turning another year older, I simply refuse to ever grow up. This, combined with the approach of spring, has made me perfectly giddy with anticipation for what's ahead. And more than ever, I'm embracing the childlike way I approach my own art and happy to share some stories as to why I think it's a wonderful thing to do. So join me now and grab a sketchbook if you like, as we hold hands and skip down this crazy and twisting road of life like a kid again. Welcome to Sketching Stuff, a collection of stories sketched from life. A box of possibilities. When I was a little kid, getting a new box of crayons was the ultimate joy. It was amazing to see all of those colors together and begin to imagine what I might make with them. Beyond simply coloring what others had already drawn in books, I would set out on my own path and draw whatever came to mind. My favorite part of that memory is the feeling I had when I did so. Never once did I question whether or not I could draw. I just assumed that I could and would happily set about doing it. As an adult, I was told there was a proper way to do everything, and while that's lovely for a child, it's time to learn how to do things a very particular way. The right way, they said. I always wondered how they knew at the time, and I still wonder to this day. There's certainly a right way to do some things, like screwing in a light bulb. If done incorrectly, no light will emit and fill the room. But when it comes to art, things get a little less clear. What's the right way? I often see people declaring a one true approach when it comes to watercolor and disregarding anything done differently. This to me isn't a very artistic point of view. Art is relative and personal. It's odd to assume that everyone using a medium is even attempting to use it in a preferred style. Sometimes, like when we were kids, people just like to play with a bit of color. For my own watercolor, I dance between the complete lack of control and adding a touch of control in the mix. This puts me right in the middle of traditional techniques. Usually, watercolorists choose between abstraction and realism, and since I couldn't choose, I adopted the center path, which isn't really a path at all, or at least not a widely accepted one. Abstractish, hyper-realism-ish isn't something you'll find broadly covered while exploring watercolor techniques. Instead, you'll typically be invited to explore one or the other. I'm truly not being a rebel, I just can't quite seem to move in either direction. In truth, I don't have the patience for true hyper-realism, and it takes hours to render something that looks like you could pluck it off the page. And when I try very abstract things, I stare at the result, and while sometimes lovely, I crave for a bit more modeling and definition. So my doodle wash style was born. A strange love child of the two that doesn't quite fit in. Combine this with my inability to let paint dry and you have a perfectly naughty and improper approach to things, like a little kid playing with crayons. 
But for me, this is what makes it fun and keeps me coming back for more. I'm not a full-time artist, but just play a bit on the side amidst a ton of other, often way less fun responsibilities. My little doodle wash of a box of crayons was made in 25 minutes in the 25 minutes that I had to paint that day, and it felt a bit childish in its approach, which I rather loved. Very fitting for the subject matter. If you're like me and just paint for fun, then I say have all the fun you possibly can. Sometimes we can just grab those colors and make whatever our heart wants to make. But yep, I totally suggest that each person listening to this learns those proper techniques from wonderful art instructors. My own style is a blend of all of that wonderful learning and I can't imagine where I'd be without it. But if you're feeling a little naughty and want to try something a bit differently, I'm here to give you permission to do that as well. You probably guessed already that I hope you'll do just about everything you possibly can and delight in the journey. I'm definitely all about do's, but the only thing I would say you shouldn't do is worry about whether or not you're doing something correctly. The only way to know that is to try it and see what others might think about it. Sometimes it's okay to think outside the box. Each day we sketch and paint something is a beautiful chance to learn and explore a wonderful box of possibilities. Playing with marbles. For a prompt of marbles once, I thought I was losing my mind and that I sketched way too many of them. This often happens when I happily make a sketch, add a bit too many elements, and realize I have to actually paint everything in during my limited painting time. But it was fun attempting my typical Mad Dash painting session with a rather complex image. Equally fun was grabbing for all 12 colors in my current daily palette and giving a little stage time to colors that I haven't used much recently. I have other colors that make cameo appearances, of course, like Viridian, which is totally required if you're ever painting a mallard duck, but this is my staple palette. It's actually well suited for marbles or even a candy dish as I love bright and happy colors. The cool thing about these colors is that if you need earth tones, they're all there in the mix. And I adore mixing colors and constantly amazed at what colors appear. The subtleties of watercolor are incredible. No matter how many times I mix the same paints, there are still those times when I'm astonished by the color that's created. And that's just one of the many things that keep me coming back each and every day. As for marbles, I did collect them as a kid, but I never played the game for which they were meant to be used. I just thought they were pretty and sparkly, so having a jar filled with them was wonderful and almost magical. When it comes to mixing colors, I still use marbles to do so to this day. Sure, once again, it's the inner child in me that chooses marbles over swatches, but it's also more like the way I paint. As many of you know, I have a few attention deficit issues that make waiting for paint to dry rather painful. When I first started painting with watercolor, I made a feverish attempt to do so correctly and wait for each layer to dry properly. This is certainly something I support and recommend for watercolor painters, but it's not been something that I myself can adhere to on a regular basis. In many ways, watercolor is like marbles for me. I'm fascinated and inspired, but I never quite use them by design. I learned some of the rules of the game and then started playing with them like I might with marbles as a kid. The result was super fun. 
I could make a little doodle wash in a fraction of the time, but I knew it lacked much of the finesse that my instructors had taught me. But my instructors are awesome and totally correct in their approach, which is why I happily promote them. My own approach is a strange cobbling together of various techniques that works with my incredibly short attention span. In my head, I'm imagining the image my masters have taught me to create, but in reality, I'm just hoping I can make a little something before time runs out. Not necessarily the time I have left in a single day, but knowing that I don't have the ability to revisit a topic more than a single day in a row. Once I start sketching and painting, it needs to finish in the little bit of time I've set aside and simply must happen in that single day. I've no idea if you, dear listener, are like me, but if so, don't fret. There's a lot that can be accomplished in a single moment of time, and creating anything at all is something worthy of celebration. If you also lack the attention span of making paintings that take a week or more to complete, just make a little something each day and enjoy the moment. It's a wonderful feeling to make some stuff appear that didn't exist before. A feeling that brings back all of that magic of childhood and playing with marbles. TV Dinner Day Born in 1953 and developed by C.A. Swanson and Sons, the TV Dinner is an icon of American history. Others had tried to develop frozen foods, but nothing achieved the meteoric success of this little three-compartment aluminum treasure, a complete meal ready to heat in an oven so you could sit in front of a television and enjoy watching your favorite show while eating it. A year prior, the TV tray table made its debut, but these little dinners were engineered to fit perfectly on them. It was a match made in convenience food heaven and remained popular for decades. When I was a kid in the 70s, I would occasionally get to enjoy one of these in front of the television if it happened to be lunch or my dad was working at night. Dinners were usually always served at the table, except for the rare and wonderful pizza and movie nights. In the 60s, a fourth compartment to house dessert was added, so for me, choosing a meal was more about picking the dessert I wanted most as though it was the prize inside a cereal box. I liked the apple crisp-like thing best, though chocolate brownies were the more popular option. It's been years since I've had one, but they definitely bring back wonderful memories. Actually, Swanson only used the term TV dinner on packaging for about a decade, removing it by 1962, but the name stuck, and here in the States, it's still often used to refer to any type of frozen dinner. Though I had the chicken version when I was young, later the aluminum was replaced with paper so to be placed in a microwave instead. Though valid attempts have been made over the years to produce something appropriately crispy in a microwave, nothing has really succeeded. The soggier version of chicken didn't really appeal to me, so I would opt out for the Salisbury steak instead. Looking back at this frozen dish now, I'm rather appalled by the visual, but back then I really loved it. The first TV dinner cost 98 cents, which is $9.25 in today's dollars. So you can get one today for around $3.50. The quality has certainly decreased sharply over time. 
I've often considered trying one to relive my youth, but I think in an effort to remain competitive, those childlike ingredients are long gone by now. So I'm happy with just my memories of that little personal feast on a shiny tray. In truth, my favorite frozen dish of all time was the chicken pot pie. This is saying a lot, since even as a kid, I would forgo my dessert compartment to have one of these instead. It was basically all of the ingredients in my TV dinner sketch, save the peas, was in cube form and encased in a pie crust. So actually, it was a bit like turning an entire meal into a dessert, so it was totally perfect for me. But meals like these were not a staple in my diet. They were a little prize I received for doing well on a test or being particularly good that week. It's the rarity that made them so wonderful and memorable. And so even though I don't partake in them today, they are still a shiny trophy of my past. A beautiful and rare time when I got to sit in front of the television and have a little dinner that I personally got to pick out. These are the silly and delightful memories that still make me smile today. And though major events may come and go, I've always had the fondest memories of things like these. A perfect little moment when mom let me choose my meal and I got to happily experience TV dinner day. The Art of Fidgeting Back when I was a kid, I was constantly told to stop fidgeting while in school. This was something to avoid as much as possible. Then a couple of years ago, Philippe saw a Kickstarter campaign for something called a fidget cube and that he'd sponsored, so it looked like we'd both be getting one when it was complete. My initial reaction was just, okay, as things like this happen all of the time in our house. But after a few moments of pondering, I followed up with, but what the hell is it? He then showed me a video of the cube in action. You could click things on all its sides, roll a metal ball around, and thumb wrestle the little joystick thingy on top. So it's like a super enhanced stress ball, I asked, to which he replied, yep, with a victorious smile. But those little happy stress balls were squishy and soft, so I was skeptical. This one could certainly do more things, but honestly, I was still confused. I've never been told exactly how to fidget before, as it would always come naturally for me. Then I found a fidget spinner in my Christmas stocking. Clearly, I was being given a signal of some kind and had to stop and ponder just how fidgety I really was to inspire such gifts. In my head, it felt like I was being given the human equivalent of a dog toy. It's true, however, that I am a bit restless much of the day. I've switched to felt tip pins at work because retractable ball points will have me clicking them incessantly to the point of attracting stares. I tap my feet and often go into full-on restless leg syndrome in meetings, but only when they're boring. The problem is I find most meetings rather boring, so it's really most of the time. I dutifully took my little fidget cube to work with me and tried it out. It fascinated me for only a few minutes before I grew bored and placed it back in my bag. I bought a new bag recently and while clearing out the old one I found my fidget cube there in pristine condition having only ever been used that one time. I'm not even sure what happened to the fidget spinner as after spinning it around a few times and using a stopwatch to see just how long it would spin before stopping I grew bored with it and my poor little stress ball in truth failed to get any more attention than these little contraptions. The problem was the repetition of the task. 
While I love little routines, I find little comfort in rote repetition. I like it when things are always a little bit new and unexpected. I adore it when what I do produces a few surprises. So all of my fidget toys have been retired now and I realize I've found the best solution to my restless spirit already. My daily sketching and painting routine is by far the best way to deal with my fidgety nature. Even though it's only a few precious minutes a day, it gives me such a moment of sharp focus that's perfectly rejuvenating. I asked Philippe tonight if he still used his fidget cube, and he simply shrugged and said no, while nodding in the general direction he thought he'd left it last. Then, without a moment's hesitation, he showed me a new 3D software he's excited to learn next. I had to giggle, as a house with two artists is a fun and ever-changing house indeed. Everything is a bit random and, well, just incredibly enjoyable. We argue and bicker like any couple, but each time one of us manages to point out a bit of inscrutable irony in our argument that leaves us both collapsing in giggles. I'm not entirely sure that restlessness and stress require a cure. They just need to be honed into something creative and given a chance to make a positive difference. And I take great comfort in the notion that perhaps simply by being artists, we've already well and truly mastered the art of fidgeting. Someone to look up to. Lately, I've been thinking about role models, and though I've no idea if frogs have them, they were the prompt that day, so that's what I doodle washed. When I was growing up, I definitely saw my mother as a role model. She was always so smart and crafty, quite literally, as she could make anything on the planet out of cloth or yarn. I watched her create all sorts of things and I wanted to learn all about it. I tried crochet, needlepoint, and sewing to name a few, managing to make a few things that didn't look completely awful, but I never quite had the talent for it. I think I only remember attempting to use the sewing machine once, but it sort of fascinated and terrified me at the same time. Later, in school, I would discover drawing, and for the first time, I felt like it was something I both loved and could actually do properly. My continuous contour line drawing of a pair of sneakers won first place and was featured in the school art calendar. I then remember having dreams of becoming an illustrator one day, but that dream was mingled in with a long list of a million other things I wanted to do. I just had a deep desire to make things, thanks to my mother, who inspired me more than she could ever know. As I grew up, my role models began to increase in number exponentially. There were writers I discovered that wooed me with each word that appeared on paper. Well, it was always paper back then, in those days at least. I still remember reading Anne Patchett's Bel Canto when it came out back in 2001. Even then, it wasn't a book I would normally have chosen. As it turns out, despite a main plot that has terrorists invading a birthday party featuring an opera star, the book was really about love and friendship, and the lyrical prose was like watching an actual opera. I remember being dumbfounded that someone could make something like that. And I remembered vowing to myself that I too would make a book one day. Though I knew it would not be in the soaring prose that once inspired me, I didn't mind. That's the beauty of role models. They are only meant to shape one's intention. The rest is entirely up to the student. 
There were so many other writers who captured my attention, including the classic wit of Oscar Wilde, a fellow Irishman. Literally nothing I pen is remotely close to their genius, but they inspired me to pick up a pen in the first place. And when it comes to art, I have so many role models, it's almost dizzying. My favorite illustrators are the ones from my favorite books from childhood. They include Quentin Blake, Peggy Fortnum, Beatrix Potter, Shel Silverstein, and Dr. Seuss. The latter three, of course, not only illustrated the books, but also penned them. These illustrators mostly produced illustrations that are slight and whimsical and really nothing like my own, but they are still my role models. And even though this stylistic direction was my favorite, I discovered several hundred other approaches in the over 500 guest artists that I featured on doodlewash.com. In short, I realize now that no matter the style, every one of these artists is one of my role models. That's perfectly crazy, I know, but my own style is a strange amalgamation of everything they've taught me over these last few years. Just like when I was a kid, I watched and blended ideas that I saw pass by me. I didn't mimic them exactly, I just loved them and let that love find its rightful place in my own style. It's been a wonderful way to approach art and life, and I have my mother to thank for starting me down this path. It's always a glorious thing to have someone to look up to. Never growing up. When I was a little kid, all I ever wanted was to be an adult so I could do all of those adult things. The moment I became one, I realized all of those things weren't as cool as I thought they were. I'm sure we've all run into bits of adulting that are nothing short of boring, if not tedious. And worse, that very sensible adult often does things in a drab and predictable fashion. As much as I always try to listen to my inner child, my adult mind can make something like painting pandas rather tough. What appears to be very black and white isn't the case at all. Little Charlie picks up on this immediately, but my adult brain is often slow to catch up. When it came time to choose crayons as a kid, I would just make a grab for a handful and simply see what I could make with them. That was so incredibly fun. Often as an adult, I catch myself worrying about whether or not I'm choosing the right colors, and then catch myself wondering just what the heck that even means. To me, it simply means creating a visually pleasant outcome. This could be done by making the pandas pink and white instead of black and white, or as I've done, just playing with those lovely colors in the shadows that my inner child pointed out to me. Though I talk about it often, maintaining a sense of play in life can be rather challenging. Some days I think I'm being crazy and fun and then I step back and realize I'm not doing anything all that different after all. I'm not really taking any chances. Then I thought back to when I was a kid and wondered why I took all those chances and risks that I did back then. It occurred to me that the reason was quite simple. I simply didn't know the difference. When I was acting silly, people assumed it was okay because I was a kid after all. But if I act like that as an adult, I'm considered to be childish. A description I really don't mind and rather adore, but it's usually corrected to childlike so that it sounds a bit better in mixed company. But I like the idea of not being like an actual child. I'm nearly 50 for goodness sakes, but simply being a bit childish. 
kind of like a child at least in the open way that I approach things and my almost insanely optimistic sense of hope. And that's why as I grow old, I'm quite content with never quite being a grown-up. The latter is perfectly optional. Each time I struggle with a sketch or an idea for work, I play around with ideas a bit and think of the silliest things I could do next. That thing that only a kid with a crayon would come up with. Sometimes I actually chase that thought through to completion, but all of the time it opens up a new space in my head and heart that makes me more creative. Sure, my relationship isn't always rosy with my inner child. Last night as I was trying to sleep, he jostled me awake to scream, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we have to try this. It's such a cool idea. And then I lay there for an hour unable to get back to sleep. But it was such a gleeful hour as I brought that idea to life in my head. I've no clue if that idea will manifest itself, but for me, that's not always the point. The very act of spinning through ideas and dreams is something wonderful all by itself. At least, I used to believe that was the case when I was a kid. So I spend each day quietly reminding myself that those moments of dreaming are all part of the grand journey, a very important part as it turns out. And pausing to make a quick little sketch of pandas was a lovely reminder of the joys that come from never growing up. Thanks so much for listening to the Sketching Stuff podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and new episodes will be added bi-weekly. Visit me at sketchingstuff.com to share your comments and stories.